find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Letting the days go by, letting the water hold me down, letting the days go by, water flowing underground, into the blue again, after the money's gone, once in a lifetime, water flowing underground, and you may ask yourself, Mary X lapsed, everybody. This is Chris. Uh, welcome to uh, something different for this week. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at some seminal and, uh, well, I guess not so seminal, uh, X-Men Christmas stories. Um, it's a weird week. Uh, it's going to be a busy week for a lot of us, and I figured I'd shake things up just a little bit. Um, I had initially considered doing like a 12 days thing. That's usually what I do when I discuss Christmas stuff over at the blog. been doing that for... About, you know, five years now, every Christmas and actually every July as well, I would do as much Christmas as I could, uh, as I could uh, assume people could stomach <laughs> because, uh, Christmas is uh, kind of dicey when it comes to creating content. Some people really love it. Some people are just done with it. So it's, uh, it's always a bit of a, uh, a gamble when you do this. Now, like I said, I wanted to do 12 days, but I didn't want us to fall too far behind on our original X-Lapse mission statement, right? Wanted to keep as close to being on target as possible. I figured here we could probably take five days and uh, just devote it to uh, some, you know, stories from the past. And the X-Lapse name is, is kind of a misnomer here, since these are all stories that I've read um, many times for some of them, fewer times for others, but uh, I'm not necessarily lapsed from them, but that's Kind of the brand right now, so we're going to keep going with that. Uh, now today, we're going to start this off with, uh, well, with Chris Claremont's very first X-Men Christmas story. We're going way back to late 1975, early 1976. This is before I was even on this planet, so uh, this is going to be a fun one. It's going to be a really fun one because it's been ages since I read it, and I think this is going to be a really fun time. So let's get right in. This is X-Men number 98. At an April 1976 cover date, the story's called Merry Christmas, X-Men. Uh, some places call it Merry Christmas, X-Men, hyphen, hyphen, the Sentinels are back. I guess whichever way you want to say it is fine by me. Written by Chris Claremont with pencils by Dave Cockrum. Inks by Sam Granger. Lead is Joe Rosen. Colors Janice Cohen. Edits Marv Wolfman. Cover price? <sighs> 25 cents. Could you imagine? Could you imagine that? Now, we don't usually dwell on the covers in our little X-lapsed corner of the world here, mostly because nowadays covers are mostly meaningless and interchangeable. Here, though, let's talk just a little bit about our cover. Um, I mean, first of all, it's really good. What we got here is a pair of sentinels atop a building being fought off by Cyclops, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, and Storm, while Colossus is swatted away and seemingly falling to his death. Now, the trade dress still reads all new, all different. I mean, these are very, very new characters. And six of our featured characters' heads are shown in a little bubble toward the top left of this image here, the top left of the cover. And it's like a mini roll call. And it's also everyone I've already named, plus Banshee. It's a good cover. I like it. Um, this is an issue that I actually don't own. 
Uh, and so I'm using the Black and White Essential X-Men Volume 1 from 1996 to uh, to read this. I'm sure one of these days I'll own it, though. Just uh, not today. <laughs> now, uh, one more thing about the cover. Um, I mean, this is a christmas theme week here. It's not really a Christmas-themed cover, is it? I mean, it doesn't have to be. But for the purpose of this episode in particular, I kind of wish it was. Don't worry, though. We'll hopefully get a Christmas cover or two in during the week. All right, now with that said, let's head inside. Now, the X-Men, they're in their civvies, and they're visiting Rockefeller Center. Folks are ice skating. The tree is up. It's a really, really nice scene. I'd only ever gone into the city a handful of times during the Christmas season, and probably only once or twice after dark during the holidays. Um, And it's probably been... Oh, boy, it's probably been 30 years since, but... uh, I remember it always being a very special place to be. Uh, I was in, uh, I was actually right at Rockefeller Center last October. I hung out there for a few days, but it's really not the same place when the tree isn't up. It's just, it's just a place. But when the tree is up and folks are out and lights are up, it's, it's a magical place. Now, into the story, it's Christmas Eve, which, if you're familiar with my Christmas posts over at Chris's on Infinite Earths, You may recall that about 95% of our Christmas issue synopsis start with, It's Christmas Eve. (laughs) Now, Jean is overjoyed that it looks like it's going to be a white Christmas. Storm comments about how uh, New York snow isn't really all that white, especially when compared to the slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro, which, while probably accurate, isn't really all that fair, is it? Uh, oh, Oh, we got cameos here. Before we go on, let's check out the uh, star-studded streets of Manhattan here. Uh, Here we see Matt Murdock. At least I'm assuming it's Matt Murdock, as I don't know who else would be wearing sunglasses at night. Uh, This is pre-Corey Hart, so it really wasn't cool to do so. Not that it really was all that cool post-Corey Hart, but at least there would be some precedent. Uh, Nick Fury is here. And oddly enough, if you look closely, Doctor Doom is ice skating. (laughs) In front of the tree at Rockefeller Center You you really can't make this stuff up Plus, uh, from across the street We do see a pair of reporters from the Daily Planet As well as a certain comics bigwig named Schwartz So how about that? Now off to the side of the group Nightcrawler with an image inducer That makes him look like a a stereotypical 70s pervert And Colossus, they're trying to chat up a pair of young ladies One of whom is named Amanda Though I can't recall off the top of my head if this is THE Amanda in Nightcrawler's life, Amanda Sefton. If it does turn out to be her, I'm guessing that this is probably her first appearance. Sean and Mora break away to take in some sights. And probably so Mora can see and compare and contrast how different New York City is during her tenth and final life. Wolverine is invited to hang out with Scott and Jean, but passes. He ain't got no use for Christmas cheer. Which kind of begs the question, why didn't he just stay home? Right. It is worth noting here that Logan is sporting one of my least favorite cockroom looks here. Okay, he's got severe Eddie Munster painted on Widow's Peak, and oh, it is unpleasant to look at. It's it's like jarringly unpleasant to look at. Really, really ugly. Um, now Scott and Jean they head into Rockefeller Plaza, with the former suggesting that you know maybe this Wolverine ain't the best fit for the team. Uh, We do get clarification here that the new X-Men have been together for almost a year at this point. Uh, Scott second-guesses his own judgment by copping to the fact that he thought Havoc and Polaris would be a great fit for the team. 
and those two tried killing the X-Men just last issue. Whoops. Inside the plaza, Jean demands that Scott just, you know, stop flapping his gums, just shut up, and kiss her. And this might be the first time we're seeing these two, like, as adults in this sort of romantic situation. And that idea is further compounded by our next pair of cameos. It's Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, who take a look at the kissing couple and proclaim that, quote, they never, they never used to do that when they had the book. Which is pretty cute. Uh, Scott and Jean head toward, I don't know, they head deeper into the place. Maybe to a dance floor, maybe to the dinner table, somewhere deeper inside the plaza. When all of a sudden, the Sentinels burst through the roof of the place. Cyclops lets loose with an optic blast, which appears to have no effect. Now, these Mark III Sentinels then helpfully inform us, and them, that they've been equipped to negate the powers of the X-Men. So Cyclops is kind of out of luck. Now, Gene suggests that the Sentinels have probably been primed with data from, quote, the old X-Men, the ones they fought back in 1969. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think we'd be getting hard hard dates like this anymore. Um, It kind of makes these characters seem ancient, except when you realize that this issue only came out like five or six years after 1969. It makes you realize that time was a lot different back then when it came to comics. I'm thinking about, like, nowadays. We've got ex-characters who've been around for, like, the better part of 20 years who still feel kind of like newbies at this point. You know, I'm thinking, like, you know, Quentin Quire, right? He's been around for almost two decades, and he still feels new. It's it's kind of weird how different times are uh, as it goes with how tenured characters might feel. Anyway, Jean slams the Sentinel with her stronger TK power, which thankfully the machine isn't, you know, up to date on. This knocks the bot off kilter, so Cyclops is finally able to land an optic blast, which sends the Sentinel's stomach parts through its back. But there are more Mark III's waiting right off panel. One KOs Scott with a karate chop and then sprays Jean in the face with some sleep agent. The Sentinel grabs Jean and flies off to somewhere while reporting into, somewhere, that the mutant designated as Cyclops is dead. Only he's not. Uh, The bot miscalculated the power of its chop. Uh, Clearly, it wasn't a a student of Count Dante, otherwise Scott's fate would never have been in question. Now we rejoin the not-dead Scott as he's dangling from a radio mast, some 60 stories above the streets of New York. And these are streets that are kind of engulfed in flames and near riots at this point. Nearby, Sean sees what's going down, and he leaps into action. Wolverine is nearby, too, and so he latches onto Banshee's feet as he flies overhead to get a bit closer into the fracas. Storm also sees what's going on, and she, too, enters the fray, managing to rescue Cyclops just before he loses his grip. And once she's up there, she informs him that, you know, hey, while I was flying over, I saw Banshee and Wolverine get snagged by a great big robot. So, uh, I guess they were taken out pretty easily. Uh, Then, speaking of great big robots, a sentinel appears. Only, as Gene suggested earlier, these sentinels have been primed to fight the original five, so when it comes to a character like Storm, it's woefully unprepared. Unfortunately, these robots seemed fully prepared to defeat Banshee and Wolverine off-panel, though. Storm then concocts a hurricane high above the New York skyline, which handily wrecks the sentinel, uh, while Chris Claremont himself looks on from the street below, which is pretty neat. Cyclops kind of freaks out, suggesting that she could have done some serious damage to the city, which she brushes off, because she knew exactly what she was doing. Cyclops is all, okay, okay, but if the professor was here... Which kind of reminds him that, oh wait a minute, the professor isn't here. 
and so Charles doesn't know that their old robotic foes are back in production. And so, this facilitates a scene shift, 1,000 miles southward to a yacht in the Bahamas. Professor X is hanging out with his old friend, Dr. Peter Corbeau, uh, whose yacht is called the Dejathoris? Dejathoris? Which uh, some deep-dive research, via about eight seconds of Googling, reveals that this is the name of a Martian princess or something from Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter novels? Maybe? I don't know. Never been into that. I, I couldn't tell you. Anywho, Xavier's here to kind of blow off some steam and to fish while pressing Corbeau for some answers regarding the binary that he pictured in his dream a couple issues back. And this is the thing that will ultimately introduce us to the wonderfully dull Shi'ar Empire. Now, Corbeau don't know. He's done a ton of research trying to nail down exactly what Xavier's talking about. He even went as far as to cross-reference the files of the Fantastic Four and the Avengers, but still, bupkis. Corbeau then suggests that, uh, hey, maybe this is, uh, you know, all in your mind, bro. To which Xavier takes great offense and accuses his pal of thinking him insane. Charles doesn't get to throw his tantrum for all that long, however, as suddenly there's a little bit of a pull on his fishing line. He's got a bite. Only, it's no fish, it's a sentinel. Xavier zaps it with a mind blast, but unfortunately he's a little bit weaker than usual due to all the wonkiness in his head. It's enough to drop the sentinel back in the drink, for now anyway. Xavier then tells Corbeau to put the pedal to the metal, or however one would go about making a yacht go fast, but then he's once again struck by the boring binary. The sentinel then bursts through the bottom of Dehathoris, rendering it into scrap, making it look like a Dexter Morgan slice of life during the finale. The bot then yoinks Xavier and takes off for... somewhere, leaving Corbeau bobbing in the surf, boatless. Thankfully, though, it would appear that uh, old Corbeau still has his sense of humor about things. Now, we jump ahead four days later. It's December 28th, 1976, another hard and firm date that I don't think we'd be getting anymore. And uh, December 28th, 1976 is just one day shy of three years until the day I uh, made my first appearance. Now, the captured X-Men, which is to say Banshee, Wolverine, and Jean Grey, they're all strapped to boards while being prodded and scanned and examined by a bunch of lab rats. We then meet our big bed, Dr. Stephen Lang. One of the technicians, who Lang refers to as a technician, informs the big boss that uh, he's getting some weird readings from Wolverine. He knows he's definitely not human, but he's not so sure that he's a mutant. Though he does concede that the, the Sentinels did say he was a mutant, however. And I'm not sure if this is one of the early hints that Claremont and Cockrum had some ugh, high evolutionary style plans for Wolverine. Eh. Now, our man doesn't cotton to being shackled, and he starts giving Lang some lip. To which the doc tells him that he can struggle all he likes, but he'll never be able to break free of the unbreakable chrome alloy bonds that hold him against that board. Gene then calls Lang a Nazi, which he denies by saying he's uh, just following orders, which probably isn't the denial you think it is, pal. Uh, Gene then asks why the Sentinels attacked the X-Men. Lang says that the X-Men are the most formidable mutants around, and so, if he gets them out of the way, it'll be far easier to rid the world of the menace. He then backhands Jean in the face, just slaps her right in the face. Now, this causes Wolverine to stop screwing around. He busts right on out of those unbreakable chrome alloy shackles, and, for the first time ever, 
snicks his claws out of uniform, which, you know, reveals that the claws are actually part of him and not just a gimmick for his gloves. It's pretty subtle. And to be honest, I totally missed the significance of this during this read-through. At first, anyway. Now, Wolverine just wrecks havoc on the lab. Rats and machines are tossed all over the place until they just bug on out and escape. Wolverine then puts on his costume, which... I guess it's handy it was there. I didn't realize he packed it. Uh, Then he frees his teammates. Now, here's where Banshee is depicted as being pretty gobsmacked to the fact that Wolverine's claws are actually a part of his body. And he wonders why the other X-Men didn't know this, to which Wolverine tells him it wasn't any of their business. Wolverine then makes an alteration to Jean's dress, turning it into a rather short thing, so they can all vamoose with the quickness. Then, another Sentinel shows up. Then, like, two or three more show up. Now, the combined efforts of these X-Men make short work of the bots. Banshee has Wolverine and Jean each grab an arm, and then he Sonic screams their way out. They burst through wall after wall until they get to the final wall of this facility, and... uh Uh-oh, something's definitely wrong. We just can't see what that is quite yet. We shift scenes back to Xavier's, where Cyclops is trying to track down the missing mutants. He's joined up by Nightcrawler, who checks in on his progress, to which there sadly isn't any. Their conversation is cut short by an intruder alert popping up on the monitors, and it turns out it's Dr. Peter Corbeau. Cyclops reveals that his Cerebro scan has not picked up any readings for the Professor, Gene, Wolverine, or Banshee, so he can only assume that they're dead. But Scott won't accept that, and he vows to continue the search. He needs to know why it would seem as though the X-Men have vanished off the face of the Earth. Well, Corbeau suggests that maybe they have been taken off-planet. You ever consider that, Scott? Hmm. And indeed, we wrap up with a shot of Banshee, Wolverine, and Jean floating in the vacuum of space. That'll do it for X-Men number 98, and uh, let's start by saying, uh, can you believe this was just one issue? (laughs) I mean, uh, we know that Claremont is a dense writer here, but you really got your money's worth back in the long ago. Could you imagine getting all this story for one thin American quarter? It's pretty insane, right? Uh, Before we dig into the book, let's get one thing out of the way. Um, Over the past five years, as I mentioned, I've covered a lot of Christmas stories over on the blog. Um, And as mentioned, five years is kind of like ten holiday seasons for the blog, considering that I run specials for Christmas on Infinite Earths as well as Christmas on Infinite Earths in July. So over there, we've probably talked about well over a hundred Christmas issues, right? And they usually fall into one or two columns. A, stories that have to do with Christmas, or B, stories that just happen to take place during Christmas, and sometimes there's overlap. For this issue, I'd suggest it's definitely more B than A, but with enough A to make it feel, you know, pretty festive, festive enough anyway, uh, until the death robots appeared anyway. Um, I haven't put the finishing touches on what the other four Merry X-Lapsed books we're going to be covering are. I, I know what next episode is, I just don't know what the final three are. So I can't say how festive the books that follow will wind up being, but, I mean, you'll know when I do, I guess. Now, as an issue itself, Christmas-themed or otherwise, well, we got ourselves a fair amount of talk about here, don't we? This is an unexpectedly seminal issue for our all-new, all-difference. Though, I mean, in fairness, back in the long ago, I suppose suppose most issues were. 
kind of makes me nostalgic for an era I wasn't even around for. I mean, I mentioned it earlier, I wasn't even on the planet yet. <laughs> so, where do we begin? Where do we begin? I, I suppose maybe we can start with one of the more context-sensitive parts of the issue. And uh, with that, I mean the revelation that Wolverine's claws are not just a glove gimmick, but are actually part of his body. And it's so weird, because, I mean, to consider some half-century or so hence, because this was a long time ago, that this was a point that actually had to be made. It's weird, right? Like I said during the synopsis, my knowing that Wolverine's claws are a part of him made me totally miss what a big reveal that this actually was. Like, I wonder if you put this book in front of a, like a newcomer to the X-Men, if they would just be like, oh, wait a minute, there was a time where we didn't know that? It seems kind of strange, right? Uh, we also have that weird thing where, you know, Wolverine is scanned, and uh, we find out that maybe, just maybe, he's not entirely mutant in makeup. I'd like to thank whoever had the forethought to snuff out the Logan is actually an Evolve Wolverine idea before it came to fruition, because... Woof, that's an awful concept. Uh, we also get to see some uh, of the first one-on-one interactions between he and Jean, which is, you know, in hindsight, pretty interesting. She doesn't seem to have any real affinity toward him, which is kind of how I wish they kept it. Uh, who, who could blame her for being turned off, though, with that horrendous painted-on widow's peak that he was sporting at the time? I mean, I could barely look at an out-of-costume Wolverine panel without... Bursting into an actual laughing fit Like tears and all because <sighs> He ain't got no alibi This is not pleasant to look at uh, The Professor His storyline here is all tied up in Shi'ar hints, right? Which makes me kinda happy that we're Just bebopping around for Christmas stories Instead of plowing straight through Because I mean, if you're following with this channel You know we're getting more than enough space stuff In the current year books I don't really think I have it in me to discuss more of it. That said, I do like the idea of it as a subplot, and getting to see Xavier conferring with a pal in Corbeau to see what he can make of it is pretty neat. If you stop and think about it, I mean, Claremont at this point was almost rewriting the language of comics. You know, subplots and soap opera, all very compelling stuff because everything has meaning and adds to the bigger picture. Everything's going to come back around, everything is going to be meaningful. It's really, really wonderful. Um, that's part of me that wishes I could just continue plowing through these stories. Shi'ar and all. Now, the Sentinels. Uh, they've never been all that interesting to me. Though, I suppose since I'm mostly swimming in Dawn of X-Waters right now, where we don't get a whole lot of X-Men vs. X-Villains, it seems strangely fresh, so I'm okay with it. Uh, the Scott and Jean scene was nice. I'd almost forgotten how much I like seeing them together. I gotta figure it's pr- it was probably kind of a, a trip for readers of the day to see these characters who, I mean, they saw as adolescents not too long ago, now as adults in a fairly mature relationship, for the time, of course. That's another thing that someone like me would take for granted, and did take for granted the first time I read this, because I came into the X fandom during a time where Scott and Jean were pretty much all but married, and they were and they were actually married not too long into it. So a scene like this wouldn't have had the same effect or impact for me. But if you'd grown up with these characters and you've seen them, uh, you know, relatively speaking, mature, I think that'd be kind of a trip to see. 
and uh, definitely something that uh, that I missed out on from coming in from you know backwards. It was interesting to see Storm kind of acting like an outsider here. Uh, <laughs> we right off the bat here, she compares New York snow to Kilimanjaro snow, which is kind of funny, kind of contentious, <laughs> a little silly. Uh, also, her hurricane antics above the city and subsequent clapback at Cyclops when he kind of scolded her for potentially endangering a whole lot of folks. I think uh, today many of us see Storm as someone who would like never, ever be questioned. But here, she's still very new. It's kind of a shock to the system for a fan of a different day and age, right? I mean, I came in, she was leading the gold team. No one was going to question Storm. Here she is, and... Uh, while she had everything under control, uh, it was perfectly reasonable for Cyclops to be like, whoa, you know, maybe reel it in a little bit. Uh, what else? What else? Uh, outside of Logan's Widow Peak, I thought the art here was fantastic. Really, really liked it. Uh, Dave Cockrum has a, a certain magic to him. It's really, really good stuff. Uh, if if we could just scrub that, that inky Widow's Peak off of Wolverine's head, this would be... Rock solid Um, It was cool seeing a bunch of cameos uh, Because they were subtle You know, we didn't plaster a neon sign With an arrow over all their heads So I mean If you notice Doctor Doom ice skating I mean that's good for a laugh, right? But if not, it doesn't really matter It could just be someone else in a cape and metal mask I guess, I don't know Uh, Same for seeing Lois and Clark right? If you notice them, it's a cool little easter egg and if not, you don't lose any enjoyment from the issue itself, which is the way the cameos really ought to be. They shouldn't hinge, a story shouldn't hinge on cameos and uh, what are the, the, those member berries that I've been hearing so much about these days. Overall, it was an absolute joy revisiting this issue because it's probably been about 15 or 20 years since I'd last read it. Uh, pulling out the essential uh, from the shelf here, I still had a bookmark in it. Uh, probably from the third or fourth time I'd read it in, within the first few years that I owned it. And uh, my bookmark was actually right after this issue. So I guess that's where my last read-through, probably circa 2002, uh, <laughs> wrapped up. So pretty, pretty neat. Now tomorrow, we're going to be taking a look at a completely different crew of X-Men taking in Christmas at Rockefeller Center. And this is an issue that I probably haven't revisited in at least 20 years, so it's going to be a real treat as well. I hope you all find uh, taking this week to look at some different stories as, uh, as fun as I'm thinking it's going to be. I, I think I might have needed a little bit of a break from the Dawn of X stuff, and so this is perfect timing. Uh, everything kind of fell into place for me here. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Please reach out. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter or weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, where I will be putting these episodes as well. Uh, you could talk to us about Christmas, the X-Men, Christmas with the X-Men, Christmas without the X-Men, whatever you want to talk about over on Facebook at 90s X-Men. And you can hear the complete Chris and Reggie audio archives, which we do have several Christmas specials on there over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that's all I got to say today. I want to I wanna thank Kermit the Frog for the intro, and I'd like to thank Kids Incorporated for the outro. It's a little weird, <laughs> a little different. I wanted to differentiate these episodes from uh, the regular ones with something silly with the theme musics. Uh, I hope you, you all dig the uh, weirdness of it. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to anyone who uh, decided to share their time with me today. It really, really means a lot. 
So with all that said, uh, next episode we're hopping forward over 20 years, but uh, same Rockefeller Center and, uh, well, all different X-Men. So (laughs) I hope we all are looking forward to that. Uh, So thanks again, and uh, until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Going on deep inside your heart.